Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friends Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Michael Morris. Michael Morris, are you as cold as I am? I am, I am indeed. Actually, it's it's a slightly milder today, but uh, but wet, and that always makes it feel a bit kind of miserable and chilly. But otherwise, in spirit, fine. Thank you. Very good. Sorry, gone. Uh, so how are you? I'm well. I'm just a bit envious because I'm, I've got uh, books in shelves envy. I don't have oh. any behind me. Yeah, no, we're, we're good on the. Uh, if anyone watching on YouTube, we are very good on the uh, backgrounds right now. Uh, I, I was I was thinking that I know that you're a big reader, and but it's all on Kindle, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the drawbacks of Kindle that you can't. I'm not sure how well read you are. <laughs> no. Maybe sorry, you should print out the covers of every single book that you read on Kindle and then just stick them on your wall. This is an idea. Faux bookshelf. (laughs) But anyway, all right, before we get into the big news of today, uh, this is a fun little story coming out of Ward 14 in Middleburg and the (laughs) Steve Traitor municipality. Uh, There was a by election just recently held there. I think yesterday, and it's a pretty safe DA ward. They get like more than 75% of the vote normally, and they did very well in this by-election. It was low turnout. They got 96% of the vote. Not particularly surprising the DA won it. The funny thing about this, though, is that the EFF put up a candidate uh, to contest the by-election, as all the major parties usually do, even when they don't have a chance of winning. Except the EFF candidate got zero votes, which means that not even the candidate, not even a member of the local EFF branch of one exists, no one voted for him, <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of difficult to be the people's revolutionary vanguard movement uh, if you're not even willing to show up to vote for yourself in a by-election. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts? <laughs> oh, describes- oh, dear. Yeah. I, okay, I see so- the total, total votes cast at 937. So could it be 938 if... As you say, the <laughs> candidate had yeah. like bread. Like maybe, maybe, said, maybe the candidate voted for another party. Oh. Or maybe, uh, yeah. which would be uh, its own kind of funny. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so if I was the EFF, I would uh, actually probably have a pretty stern talking to someone there because you've you got, you got to at least vote for yourself. Come on. Anyway. Um, Okay, now that that cheery news is out of the way, let's get on to something horrifically dark, uh, and that is a report by um, by the Global Peace Index, uh, which looks at the level of violence in various countries around the world and the cost to the economies um, that uh, that that is suffered by those uh, by, as a result of violence. Um, this uh, index is produced by the Institute for Economics and Peace, and it looks at 163 independent countries and territories according to their level of peacefulness. Um, and South Africa, as you might imagine, with our high murder rates and high levels of crime, despite the fact that we do not have any wars or armed insurgencies or anything like that here, uh, is not doing too great. We fell eight places compared to the previous year. This was for um, 2022 that the thing looked at. Uh, we are now 130th out of 168, which is really not a great number. Um, but even worse than that, actually, is that it tried to estimate how much damage was done to our economy uh, as a result just of violence, you know, crime, murders, that kind of stuff. 
And the report reckons that uh, violence cost us 167 billion US dollars, or 3.3 trillion rand in 2022, which is about 15% of the country's entire GDP is wasted, essentially, dealing with the consequences of violence. Um, if you're interested, the most peaceful country on Earth uh, was Iceland, uh, while Afghanistan was last, unsurprisingly. Uh, South Africa even performed pretty poorly within sub-Saharan Africa, where we ranked 32 out of 44 countries. Um, and in a region of the world as troubled as sub-Saharan Africa, that's not a great uh, showing. Um, the report also says that the cost of violence in South Africa grew significantly between 2021 and 2022. And that the uh, per capita impact of violence in South Africa in 2022 was about 2,947 US dollars per a person, uh, which is a pretty staggering number if you think about it. So, um, Sarah, let me start with you. What do you make of this? Do you find this a credible report? Um, and, I mean, what do you have to say on it? Yeah, um, what it implies is that uh, lockdown served a purpose, uh, at least in the respect of lowering crime levels, um, violence levels rather, um, overall, because there seems to the pickup and the drop in the num in, you know in our cat in our rating came as you know as lockdowns ended and and, and the, the pandemic sort of lifted. Um, I think, look, I, I don't know how credible it is, but it sort of rings true. We were a very violent society. Um, the, the the societies listed after us, one associates with violence and one can't go into too many of them. But the very fact that a lot of the societies that scored really badly are in some form of armed conflict, be it a war or an insurgency or a civil war or unrest of that kind, um, that's rather scary. I mean, even Mozambique, which had the awful insurgency in the north, um, the Al-Shabaab insurgency, is is ranked, where did I see it, at 118. Um, so I, I, I think it basically concerns how we feel about violence. And there's no doubt the, the sort of confluence of corruption with violence and violence is obviously being used as a tool to aid in the corruption would make, would, would make a lot of sense. I mean, you just think about the costs of, of violence. Um, every time someone is intimidated, someone is beaten up, someone is killed in, in, in an act of crime, um, of course, it creates all this emotional trauma and damage to the families and the friends around that person. You lose human capital. You A, a lot of people who get killed are, um, you know, generally the victims of violence tend to be youngish men um, who are then not able to go out and, and, and work or get normal jobs, that kind of thing. Uh, you have to spend money then, because um, it, it prompts people to spend money on security and fences and things. So while they could be increasing their productivity, they're now spending it on protecting themselves. So to me, this 15% number makes sense. And I think it is a sort of slightly under-examined part of why South Africa is not nearly as successful and prosperous as it should be, which is just that we have to spend so much energy and money and time on protecting what we already have, um, never mind growing growing the pie. Uh, Michael, what do you make of this? Mm, I think, I mean, there are two good points that both of you have made that I'd like to pick up on. Uh, this last one, 
Um, it's 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 it, you know the, the, Hannah Arendt's phrase about um, about Eichmann and uh, Holocaust, uh, the banality of evil comes to mind. It's become a sort of banal ordinariness in our lives that we we are constantly at risk. Certain categories are more at risk than others. Women, especially, as we say. Um, Anybody who works at night, uh, anybody who works on their own, <clears throat> Somali shopkeepers, you know, there are various categories, farmers who are especially vulnerable, but all of us have a sense of vulnerability, and it's just something that we factor into how we live, how we move about, uh, and how we spend our money. We spend uh, a lot of it, as you point out, on all kinds of things that either are intended to preempt the, the the risks or mitigate the risks, but then of course we're also having to spend on the consequences. Um, so I think I think it, it 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 is it's just kind of part of the fabric of our lives, even in the most you know outwardly peaceful um, parts of the country, where arguably where I live, I'm very very lucky. Um, the, the, just out of the blue, there could be some quite sort of ordinary robbery that just goes wrong and somebody's dead. You know, it's just it's just a shocking uh, fact of the way things play out. And then to pick up on something that Sarah mentioned was <clears throat> this, you know, the, the, you know where, where this actually comes from, and, and I'm certainly not a criminologist, and I'm sure there are vastly sort of complicated factors that all play into this. But one has a sense of um, a society that is constantly confronted with uh, the, the the reality of lots and lots of people and conceivably increasingly numbers of people getting something for nothing and f facing virtually nil consequences as a result. So we have a, you know, a society that's constantly aware of, you know, perhaps the possibility is that we could also get something if we just, you know, took this little risk. It doesn't seem to be a great risk. Let's just take it. And then once you're sort of down that path, it's and you confront resistance or you confront some kind of threat or the threat of exposure or the threat of consequences, violence is uh, is so so readily comes to the fore. So I think I think the, these two factors are, are, are you know very significant aspects of it. You know how shocking. I mean, there's there really is no reason why after thirty years of a, a democratic constitutionally you know democratic constitutional uh, dispensation that we should not have got well down the road towards um, creating a society which people really do feel that their effort is rewarded, um, that they are included in the economy, that, um, that criminality is not acceptable, that the police are effective, that vulnerability is being reduced because we're all better off and we're all mutually self-respecting and so on. So it's a shame. It's a shame. But yeah, shocking. Yeah, I it does strike me, and I haven't been uh, through the list with a fine-tooth comb, but it does strike me that we're probably the freest, most democratic, and wealthiest mm. of the nations in that experience such high levels of violence, which is a very odd place to be. Um, mm. You know, especially when you compare us to, and I, and I, I kind of, you know, I'm sure you could quibble with the, uh, the, the, you know, the placing of Mozambique ahead of us, right? Um, but I think there's probably some truth to that, right? That even yeah. though Mozambique has this northern area, which is drenched in violence, that in a lot of the rest of the country, it's really not something that people encounter on the same level. We have this kind of very strange, decentralized, 
permanent layer of violence over our whole society, uh, which is just incredibly corrosive. Um, Sarah, do you have any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I actually think Amer America comes just under us, for, uh, interestingly enough, but I won't dwell on that. Um, I think what we face in the society is, it, you know, people say poverty doesn't lead to crime, and I think that's probably right. It's not the poverty per se, but it's the idleness, it's the diminution in, in sense self-worth. It's also, you know, we're a, we're a materialistic society where people see other people, particularly politicians at all levels, with varying levels of competence, leading very bling lives. And um, mm. I think right. all of those things, plus with young men, the testosterone of being young men, mm. crime becomes bigger crime, becomes more violent crime, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where you get your spiral. And what is the government doing? It's not addressing issues that, that hinder employment. It wants to deal with social grants. What an admission right. of failure. Mm. Now, and I, I think the, I think there's a lot actually to be said, and I'm sure criminologists have said it. Um, but uh, you know, I think as lay people, we often overfocus on kind of some of the economic reasons for why people might engage in violence or crime or that kind of thing. But there's a sort of uh, I think I, I think countries develop a sort of atmosphere or culture with regards to violence, kind of generally across them, um, and uh, that would explain why a wealthy country like the US to some degree, has, has such high levels of, of violence relative to other countries in the same wealth. Um, but also, I think it explains why a country like South Africa, which should be better off than a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, um, is, is burdened with such high levels of violence. <clears throat> All right, uh, let us move on to our next story. Um, and this is uh, a report by Ratings Africa. They're an analyst there, Leon Klaassen who looked at the amount of money being spent on capital infrastructure projects in South Africa's major metros. So the metros divide their budgets into two chunks. There's operating expenses, which is to just keep, that's paying the salaries, that's just paying the utility bills, that's keeping everything going essentially as is. Um, and then there's capital expenditure, which is two things. One is replacing and renewing old infrastructure, and two is building new infrastructure. Uh, so capital capital expenditure is very important, especially in a country where you've been trying to roll out infrastructure to ever larger numbers of people and grow the economy in a very serious way. And uh, according to Ratings Africa's analysis, uh, the metros are not in a great shape in terms of how much money they are spending on capital infrastructure and that this is likely to result in serious deterioration of the quality of service delivery going forward. And as a resident of Johannesburg, who lives in suburbs that were built about sort of 50, 60 years ago. Uh, I can say that I very much feel this, right, where you've got sometimes quite old infrastructure that has not been replaced for decades, um, and it just uh, falls apart. Um, so uh, National Treasury says that you should spend somewhere between 10 to 20% of your total budget on capital infrastructure projects, um, this uh, the 10 is the lower end and if your city's infrastructure is in bad repair you should spend closer to 20 percent um unsurprisingly the city of cape town is right in the middle uh it has it spends about 15 cents for of every rand in its budget uh so 15 percent on um on, on on its capital expenditure but then you also uh have cities like um joburg which spends 10 uh, 9.4 percent of its budget which is below the minimum threshold. 
But then quite shockingly, you've got a city like Twane, which, as we know, has terrible infrastructure problems, as evidenced by the Hamanskra water situation, um, which is only spending about 5% of its budget on capital expenditure. And then you've got uh, a place like Ekuraleni, you know, uh, the East Rand with industrial stuff, the airport, uh, only spending about 4.8% of its budget on capital expenditure, which means that things are really going to seriously deteriorate there. Never mind new things not getting built that do need to be built. Um, Michael, what do you make of this? It's it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And uh, we were talking a bit before the show that there's um, this perhaps is an indication of, of, of lack of management skill. Mm, I think so. I, the other thought that just immediately comes to mind, of course, is that this relates quite closely to our previous story um, in this sense that, um, you know, we're a society that that is not dealing with kind of fundamental things, how to improve services and infrastructure that enable people to get into circumstances where there's less less vulnerability, but also perhaps less poverty and less temptation to crime and so on. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, again, probably quite a complex topic. Uh, I, I know that the, the difficulty always with building new things is that you've got to actually have the much greater sum to keep it running. Uh, I, I remember once as a journalist doing a story on uh, somebody saying, you know, we really need to build a new hospital in Kailisha, wherever it was. There is actually one there now. And somebody else pointing out that, you know, it, it, the cost and, and the, the argument was it'll only cost so much. Well, it'll only cost so much to build it, but to run it would cost, you know, 10 times that every year. And so there is that that sense that, um, it, you know, to, to spend capital sums means you're also, you've got to spend the other sums as well to keep the thing running. But without the capital, without the, the infrastructure, uh, there's inevitably, as you've indicated, there's going to be a steady decline over time. And if you, if you postpone those essential projects, uh, as we've seen with ESCOM, I think, uh, there comes a time where it's it reaches a crisis level and it's almost impossible then to to tackle it. Um, and so, w w you know, w one does wonder what what is it about Cape Town? I'm happily a, a resident of Cape Town that uh, enables it to spend 15.7 percent and be in that ideal uh, bracket that Treasury is set. And I do suspect that it probably is very ordinary things you, employing somebody who an engineer who is well-trained, has some experience in, in, in maybe smaller towns or elsewhere in the city, has now been moved up into a senior position. He or she uh, can now draw together a team who will look at you know what the city really needs, uh, be able to draw up proposals to go to councillors who are politically elected and say, look, we know that you want to you want to do this, but we say this is really what you ought to spend money on. It's not very sexy. We're going to put in you know loads of pipes underground that are not going to be visible, and nobody's really going to know the benefit of them. But we can assure you, in ten years' time, you will be grateful that we did the spending. And it's all this sort of thing. It's 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 quite um, it's quite prosaic. It's quite you know quite dull sort of work in a sense but essential to keeping this organism of the city functioning 
um, and with the future is, is, is basically what it is. Looking ahead, plotting projections of population, of, of water use, of everything else. Um, and I think it does, it takes an enormous amount of expertise and it takes um, a particular kind of leadership, I think, too. People who, um, men and women who can, who can say, well, you know, this is this, this, this vast enterprise we've got to run. We've got to have the right people. Um, let's let's find them let's recruit them let's pay them properly let's you know treat this thing seriously um and and i i'm pretty sure that that this is what we are seeing reflected in in these figures at least one of the key factors what strikes me about the sara is that you know we have it, this is not just about not spending enough on on replacing old things and building new things <laughs> this is also about spending far too much on keeping things running as they are, which, as we know, is usually in most municipalities in the country not done very well to begin with. Uh, and I think this is another symptom of the overinflated civil servant wage bill. Uh, we know that government spends an enormous amount of its money on just paying the salaries of government officials uh, in all sorts of jobs who don't really give you that much government for how much money you spend on them. Um, or at least very efficient government. They may give you lots of government, but it's not very pleasant government. Uh, do you agree with that? And, and what's your take on this? Well, just first to say that I live in Joburg, and I would, be, I would really appreciate um, infrastructure development within 10 minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, I realize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is usually a sign of, well, it could be a number of things. It could be bad budgeting. Um, it could be, and most likely the emphasis would be on, on management and the ability to do things and to plan them properly and to foresee the need of what uh, what you'll need. And I think the problem is we probably have way too many people working at it who can only see the here and now, if they can see that at all. Um, so, it, as you say, it's, it's, it's the mundane stuff that makes all the difference to your, you know, your 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 quality of quality life. Of life. Um, right. Yeah. Um, so it's usually that, and sometimes, and I'm not sure if it's the case in this instance, but usually if you don't spend your budget, your next year's budget is the same size as the budget you spent this year. Um, so your your chances of making up for the deficit in your in your department's various abilities to 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 provide the infrastructure needed diminishes. Um, I think, with, I mean, with Cape Town, it's, it's, it's the exception. I mean, if you look at the fact, and this goes back to, to both the last two stories, um, they've stopped work on the building of RDP houses. So you've got the development of infrastructure, you've got, you're meeting people's needs because one city official was shot by one of the mafia, one of the mafias. And I mean, I think you would have to have a thousand people shot here by the mafias before you stop an infrastructure, you know, to stop an infrastructure project like that. And I think it's it's that sense of of, of urgency, of need, of paying attention to what your, uh, what your citizens, you know, are desperate for. Um, and invariably, if it's not, if there's not, if it's, if one puts corruption out of the way, it is dealing with skills and ability to perform. Michael, any closing thoughts on this? Mm, um, just, a, just kind of a few things. Um, 
the 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 idea of the sort of mafioso element in in development i think it's a it's a very it's a very real problem and even here in cape town i just happened to be driving uh, earlier this 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 week taking um, my son to a, a school the community service project and there lo and behold we saw uh, some technical people working on a railway line uh on i think the electrical aspect of it and alongside them was um what what used to be quite i don't know if they still call this it used to be called a casper one of those armored vehicles with private security people and i was quite astonished and I, my wife who happens to work with an organization that works closely with the city i mentioned this to her in the evening and she said, oh yes that's that's the standard procedure is to protect the workers from um from criminals so it's yeah it's a, it is a big problem but that that then is again you know perhaps an element of how things can work you you recognize you've got the problem, you've got to get the workers out there to fix the whatever's got to be done, and then you provide the security that goes with it. Um, well, you've just explained how 15% of our GDP could be disappearing to violence. Well, exactly. There we go. You see, it's uh, the, the story, that's what it says, the stories do, do tire. Um, I also just briefly wanted to comment on a, one of the, the comments that, that a listener made here about um, cities being being swamped. Um, and this, I, I've, it's often intrigued me as, a, as an issue, a problem, and an opportunity that cities face. If cities aren't being swamped, in a sense, what they risk becoming is stagnant. Um, mm -hmm. And you get stasis of lack of growth and lack of interest, and people don't want to be there. So if cities are being swamped, they, it's because people who really have to choose carefully, and poor people chiefly, I'm talking about here, very, very carefully about where they live. They can't take the risk of going to a city unless there really is a chance of a better life. And invariably, that is what draws all of us. I mean, I come from a smaller town, uh, as does my wife. It's an international phenomenon. We move towards big cities because they offer more things. Um, so, you know, it looks like a problem. And I think if you don't prepare for it, it is a problem. I happen to know that the city, but I know this from covering the city years ago, um, they have a unit that is focused entirely on population projections, who's coming from where, how much money have they got, how little money have they got, what are their needs, where they're going to, you know, we want them to live here, but why won't they go there? They're going to, you know, where are they going to go and try and live? All this kind of stuff. And it's just, a, it just you've just got to plan for it like mad and um, and just keep your eye on that, on that, that ball. Yeah. The only thing worse than having far too many people move to your city is having far too few. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you say, it's, that's, you know, when you really see a city begin to die, yeah. when people aren't coming to it. So it's an interesting kind of, it's definitely a problem when huge numbers yeah. of, of people move to a city very quickly. But at the same time, the, the, the opposite is actually worse. Yeah. Um, but it's, anyway, Mm. Let's, let's move on to our next story. Uh, very briefly, we don't have a lot of time to cover this, uh, but the city of Swane, and this actually is going to tie back into the topics we've discussed today, um, is looking at trying to crack down on corruption in its metro police force. Uh, and in fact, they say that they're going, they are encouraging members of the public to take photographs of um, metro cops when they are pulled over, and also to ask for the metro cops' sort of letters of appointment, their official papers, which say that they are a proper metrocop, who they are, um, and basically how to contact them if they are, in fact, not following procedure or seeking a bribe or something like that. Um, however, the MMC, 
uh, in Tainé for community safety says, there is active resistance against this, the measures being put in place to restore discipline, command and control and ethics within the TMPD. I would have expected the unions to welcome the interventions which are aimed at improving their members' working conditions and reputation and to constructively engage the city and the acting chief of police in this process. Unfortunately, some union representatives seem determined to create and enforce a perception that they and their members are quite happy with the status quo to the detriment of the city and its residents. And this is in response to Samu, the South African Municipal Workers Union, saying uh, that police should not allow members of the public to take their photos. Uh, they've released a circular saying, do not allow members of the public to take your pictures, as this will compromise your safety. Police officers are murdered every day because their pictures are circulated to criminals. Um, a spokesperson for the union went on to say, only members of the media are allowed to take pictures of officers while on duty. If we allow members of the public to take pictures of our members, then we are putting them at risk. Crime is very high. We cannot allow anybody to take officers' pictures. We are not talking about corrupt officers. We are talking about good officers. Uh, the unions did encourage uh, their, uh, their members, however, to carry the letters of appointment, as the city suggested. So on that point, they seem to be rhetorically on the same page. But... Um, Michael, what do you make of this? Um, I understand, in a certain sense, the paranoia uh, that police officers might feel. Uh, it's true. A lot of South African police officers are murdered all the time. But at the same time, what is this nonsense about not being able to take a photo of the cops? No, no, it is astonishing. And I mean, I was quite surprised, actually, that they're saying that... Um, that it was fine for, for journalists to take pictures. I would have thought that the, the, the one category of people that wouldn't want to be poking their nose into their affairs would be journalists. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it does. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate, I think, because it, it, it does immediately project the idea that they've got something to hide um, when, in fact, uh, I think the police, the, the, the security of the police would be much, uh, much enhanced by openness. Uh, and by engaging with the public and by having the public on their side, I think would be a, a, an enormous benefit. Um, and un unfortunately, we know from a lot of polling that that um, police agencies tend to be distrusted rather. Um, and yeah, so I think the, the, the reverse is really the ideal. Um, and, you know, the public, I, I remember a, a very senior just years and years ago in my young days in, in, in a newsroom saying you know, the journalists only exercise every day the rights that are available to every other person in this society or, or to be in a free society are. Um, and that's really what applies here. There's no reason why the public um, shouldn't take pictures of whatever they want um, and uh, and be sub subject to, you know, all the, the, the kind of rules and the, 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 the tenets of, of, of law and justice that apply to everyone else and apply to journalism. Um, and I think it, it would actually be a benefit, would be a benefit to the police if um, there was a general sense that we were committing to openness and accountability and so on. So, Sara, what do you make of this? Um, this is obviously an initiative by the anti-ANC coalition which controls SONE. Um, and I'm you know, I think it, it demonstrates another one of these examples of why reform is not always so easy, because yeah. even when you have political control, there's resistance within the system. Sure. Uh, what do you make of the reform efforts in the first place and just the story in general? Okay, look, I think any anything to reform in in this in this situation is to be welcomed, whether it, whether it will work or not. Um, I think Samu and his members are kind of missing the point. The encouragement to photograph policemen 
not the actual photographing the policeman, but the encouragement to do so, will, should have the salutary effect on the police to behave properly so that mm. you don't feel the need to photograph people. And as the point is made, the, the press are probably going to screw your face much further and much wider. Um, and just to remind you that Samu uh, was responsible for one of the most violent strikes in South African history. So, yeah. you know, um, mm. they said the better. Yeah, uh, exactly. Anyway, I think we are out of time for today. So thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found the show interesting. We'll be back next week on the Daily Friend Show. Everyone have a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.